Hi, this is Amy Proal with the PolyBio Podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Wes Ely. He's a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine with subspecialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. And his research has focused on improving the care and outcomes of critically ill patients with ICU-acquired brain disease. And he's also the founder and co-director of the Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship or SIDS Center, an organization devoted to research and ongoing care for people affected by critical illness. And recently, he has been helping and studying patients with COVID-19 and also long COVID. Wes, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Amy Proal. It's wonderful to be here, and I hope that we have a lot of fun. I'm going to learn more from you than you'll learn from me, I'm sure. No, no. I, I am so interested to, to hear more about what you're up to. So can you tell me more about what you're doing? I know you've been treating patients with COVID. Have you also been studying them? How did you get into this? Um, bring me up to date. Yeah, sure. We, in, in our SIB Center, this Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship Center, and by the way, the educational website is just icudelirium.org. So if you want to find us, icudelirium.org. We have about 30 or 40 ongoing studies, and many of them are NIH and VA sponsored. And one of them, a key way to link in COVID, was called the Brain ICU Study, which we had. It's about a $20 million study from the National Institute on Aging. And that NIH-sponsored study was designed to collect the brains of ICU survivors once they die, of course, and to establish a brain biobank to understand what is the type of dementia that so many millions of people acquire during a critical illness episode. And so bottom line is that even in a five to 10 day ICU stay, people can go from no dementia to dementia, which for years now, they have a different trajectory of their entire life because of this acquired dementia, but nobody has ever really characterized the histopathology and the, and the type of dementia that it is. So once COVID hit and we realized that people were suffering so much brain dysfunction, brain fog and, and long-term disability in long COVID, we made it into a COVID and non-COVID study. So now the beauty, Amy, is we can compare the non-COVID critically ill patients with the COVID patients. And that's how we're gonna try to unravel what is long COVID really? And how does this virus through immunological mechanisms, through ongoing viral proliferation or through small blood clots even, how does it affect the brain? What's it doing up there? Wow, that is amazing to hear. That is actually one of the things that I think is most important to happen now with long COVID, uh, COVID and long COVID, because you'll hear me talk often about the fact that, and it's great, a lot of research teams start with these diseases by collecting blood and sometimes salivary or other samples from patients, but it's very hard often for analysis of those samples to fully capture, of course, what's happening in the tissue of patients with the disease, and especially in the brain, there may be some signal, but of course, there could be all kinds of changes or differences in the brain that are not captured by that kind of work. So doing a study of actual brains and brain tissue is so important. It is. And the other thing I'll add is that the beauty of our center and well, these studies that we do with NIA and the VA is that we, you know, many of the brain collection studies just collect the brain upon time of death, but they don't have this incredibly rich provision of data during the ICU stay, during the months and weeks 
prior to death. And that's what we will have here because we're enrolling these people prospectively from the moment that they get into the hospital. And we have research technicians and nurses going and seeing these people every single day. And many of them develop delirium. They get all kinds of sedation drugs, which can obviously create brain disease itself. So we're going to be able to hopefully tease out what of this was disease-induced, what of this was iatrogenic, and how much did I, as an ICU doctor, cause, you know, because I'm on the hook here, I'm complicit in their injury, and I know that, and that's what we call the post-intensive care syndrome, where people go through critical illness, and they get this acquired dementia, PTSD, and depression, and some of that stuff is preventable, but how much? Yes. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And so how many people they, I did not know this that much about this form of dementia. So you're saying that once you put people, people come into the ICU, for example, with COVID and then they're put on a ventilator, when does this start to occur? The sure. dementia? Yeah. Well, it, like in the next year, single year only in the United States, only about 6 million people will be in intensive care. And of those 6 million people over half will end up with some form of PICS or post-intensive care syndrome. And that PICS is really, the main thing is neck up dementia, PTSD and mental health problems like depression, and then neck down muscle and nerve disease. So if over half of them, that's millions of people right there who will have this issue. And that doesn't even include COVID, which adds on top of it. And then one last thing, just to make sure your listeners get this, is that there are lots of COVID patients who never go in the hospital and also have intense brain fog during long COVID. Mm -hmm. So we actually are aware that this disability of PICS isn't inclusive enough. We have to expand our consideration to take the long COVID patients who never even got admitted to the hospital. Wow. Okay. And this was something, so this happens in normal patients, I would say admitted to the ICU, let's say for a different respiratory disease or a different illness and also in COVID patients, or are you seeing it even more in COVID patients? Are there any difference in the incidence in which this is happening? Sure. So if you came in with a, with a strep pneumonia or a heart valve infection or a kidney problem, none of those being COVID related, you'd have over 50% chance of landing yourself with PICS, post-intensive care syndrome. COVID patients are even more likely to get this problem. So at the very beginning of COVID, actually, I, I was a doubter of long COVID. I'll, I'll just admit that. Please nobody throw darts at me or anything. But what I thought was going on was that the people suffering from COVID were PICS. And the reason was I was in the ICU with these COVID patients all the time and they were dying and I was watching them when they survived have so much disability. So right. I just thought, well, yeah, the majority of this is probably post-intensive care syndrome. But then I started meeting people and they were contacting our center who never got hospitalized at all. So by definition, they can't have PICS, post-intensive care, because they never went to intensive care and they were disabled. They were walking with canes. They were quitting their jobs because they had brain fog and all kinds of POTS, you know, heart, heart problems and GI problems. And I realized, oh my gosh, I am totally wrong. There is an entire other entity called long COVID, which isn't PICS. So now in our pandemic, we actually have two major problems for long-term disability that are creating this public health catastrophe. And part of it is PICS and part of it is long COVID. And some of the patients, unfortunately, have both. Yes, that's a really good explanation. I can honestly see why you didn't 
suspect or understand how people who just had mild or asymptomatic cases of COVID would develop a broad range of really debilitating chronic symptoms, because I understand how in theory, it would make the most sense that the patients who had the most severe cases and had to be hospitalized and had the most intense acute COVID experience would be the ones that would develop profound chronic symptoms. And yet we don't necessarily see that as I'm sure you're realizing. And as you just explained, there are sometimes even patients who had a mild or even asymptomatic case that also get really debilitating chronic symptoms. And it does take a while to, to figure that out. And yeah, and you know what's what's really interesting, and this will be the first time I've ever said this publicly. So on your mm -hmm. podcast, you know, okay. th this is the record for this, was that you know long COVID patients right now feel very marginalized and silenced, mm -hmm. and part of the reason. And I wrote a piece in Stat News called "Let's Not Silence Long COVID Patients," but in that piece, I'm about to tell you something that you don't know about this silencing. I think in that piece, I had a patient with just picks named Ray Fugit. And then I had a woman who had only long COVID. She never got in the hospital. And then I had a woman who had both. And what I learned in doing this research and what, what I learned every week from our many, many support groups for survivors is that it's not just the long COVID patients who feel silenced. But guess what? When long COVID became a thing in the social media, the PICS patients felt silenced because they were like, wait a minute, we've been here for 20 years and now nobody's talking about us again. So I think that they felt just like the MECFS patients felt. The MECFS patients were like, wait a minute, hello, 20, 30 years, y'all have been not paying attention to us. And now all the attention is going to long COVID, come pay attention to us. And that's exactly the way the ICU survivors felt. So really what we need to do is, is amplify the voice of all of these groups. Exactly. I mean, it, it's, I guess, not surprising to hear that because I was researching MECFS before COVID started and those patients absolutely feel silenced and also that the topics that sometimes matter most with their lived experience as patients are not reflected in the research that is done on them as patients. We already knew that these issues were happening. But I didn't realize, see, this is on my end, I didn't realize that was a thing with PICS patients. And I have to say that I don't understand honestly, and that's something we could discuss, why this is happening with all of these groups of patients, to be honest, where they don't feel listened to um, uh, previously. And I do um, think that, you know, it's great that the long COVID patients are being, I don't know, listened to as well, but I agree with you. Let's just listen to everyone um, and exactly. also provide just and, and empathetic. Let me give you, I'll, I'll never forget yeah. this. I was, I was in Argentina uh -huh. and I was about to speak at a big critical care meeting. I brought one of my three daughters down there and you know, it was a daddy-daughter trip, but I was about to go talk. And that morning we were looking at the newspaper and there was this article and it had this graph of the increasing number of Alzheimer's disease patients. And, you know, the bars were going up and up and up over the years. They were projecting it out to 2025 and 20, 2050. And I thought to myself for the first time, I'll never forget. I was like, oh my gosh, they think, and everybody thinks that all of this dementia is Alzheimer's when what percentage of each of these bars are ICU survivors with PICs? And I thought that's when I first started. This is well over, this is 15 years ago. I started thinking, you know what? These people are being silenced because they, what happens is this the general practitioners and the nurses and people out in the world who don't land, who don't, who don't work in an ICU, um, they think that, that John comes in. Sally, John's wife, says, John isn't the same as he used to be. They start paying attention to how his memory's gone bad. They don't say, were you in the ICU a year ago? And they never make the connection to the ICU stay. So they say, you know what, Sally? John has developed dementia and it's probably Alzheimer's disease and check. 
that gets put in that Alzheimer's bar. But, but, and, and the other problem is that the ICU doctors are in the outpatient setting. So we think that we did a great job. Oh, I'm a wonderful doctor. I pat myself on the back. I got them better and they go out in the world. You're ready to go. And we don't tell them that they're going to have this problem of PICS either. So it's problem on both ends. And the patient goes out in the world thinking, oh, my doctor said I'm better. Well, why can't I go back to work? Why am I not remembering anybody's names at a party? Why am I so embarrassed? Because I can't walk right and think right. And I'm having nightmares every night. And I wake up in a cold sweat. And my wife doesn't understand me anymore. And then we get divorced. And I lose my family. And I lose my job. And I can't even pay for my electricity bill anymore. And that's the life of a PICS patient that I've been studying for 25 years. And so they, they rightly feel like, holy cow, y'all passed us up again with the long COVID thing. So everybody needs to be heard. Oh gosh. Wow. Yes, they do. I mean, that's, it's interesting. It really sounds like part of the problem is just this incredible compartmentalization that exists in medicine right now, where a patient sees a certain doctor for a certain period of minutes, and then the appointment is over, and then they're referred to another specialist, and that specialist begins practically from scratch sometimes, and there's, first of all, a lack of communication. And so what you're saying is some of the critical care doctors don't actually check back with any of the patients after they've left the ICU. So they don't realize they have these chronic symptoms. And then the doctors who do get them and see that they have chronic symptoms when they hear that reported, don't bother to check. They run this. I mean, this is how do we improve at least the it communication is. Is. here? Let me, you see yeah. reaching back to something. I'm reaching back for a box in my office for those just as an audio. And I'm holding up a box yeah. from a patient named Teresa Martin. And during COVID, I'm going to read you three paragraphs about this woman, this patient of mine named Teresa Martin, because I believe, Amy, that the power of human story is how we will get people to listen. If we can use real people and their actual stories, then we can get people to start paying attention to one another. And I am, as I said, I am guilty here. Okay, so this box that I just pulled out is of Teresa Martin's medical records. And you can see I'm old now. I've got, I've got gray hair. I'm 58. And this is a handwritten note from her clinical record. And while I was writing this book called Every Deep Drawn Breath, you can see it here. I abbreviated E-D-D-B, Every Deep Drawn Breath. That title is taken from Steinbeck's East of Eden, by the way. It's a beautiful, beautiful pro, part of prose from his Nobel winning book. And um, the epigraph gives you the source of Every Deep Drawn Breath. But while I was writing the book, I, I knew that Teresa had to be one of the patients in this book. It's a book of narrative nonfiction. It's, it's not a memoir. It's about real people and this evolution back to humanism. The whole goal of this is let's get back to humanism at the bedside, out in society with your loved ones. Let's put people first and not technology. And, and what I did so wrong for so many years, I carried the shame and guilt around with me as an ICU physician was that I was so focused on technology that I was missing the touch. And touch should come first. It should be touch first, technology second, not the other way around. So in this note that I just held up to you, I'm gonna read you this sentence. Now this woman, she was in her mid twenties. She had been in the ICU on a ventilator from pneumonia and she'd been up there for many weeks with me caring for her, paralyzed, sedated, immobilized, her parents crying over her every day. And I wrote this sentence. However, amazingly enough, the patient still manifests only single organ damage with good renal, GI, cardiovascular, and brain function. Oh my gosh. Okay, remember that sentence. Now, a month later, she came back to me. And I thought it was going to be this triumphant reunion. And here's what happened. She came in in a wheelchair. 
slowly wheeled into the room, pushed by an aide, her mother at her side. As I read this, by the way, Amy, and your listeners, think of COVID survivors, think of long COVID. And this occurred in 1989. Okay? So 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago. And think of the patients now, because this will describe, this description will fit so closely with a 2022 COVID survivor. Here we go. She turned to me with a blank stare, and I wasn't sure if she remembered me at all. Almost immediately, Teresa's mom asked, why can't she bend her arms at the elbows or move her shoulders? Her mom looked drained, more tired even than when she visited her daughter in the hospital. We ran through a litany of other problems Teresa was having. She couldn't swallow properly or sleep or go to the bathroom alone. She couldn't shower or dress herself. She could walk only a few steps at a time and stairs were impossible. The idea of returning to her old job as an administrative assistant was exhausting. The list of ailments was dizzying and I had no immediate solutions for any of it and even less of an understanding of where the problems were coming from. So I did what I knew how to do. I ordered blood work and chest x-rays. The labs didn't show anything alarming but the x-ray images of her arms, legs, revealed calcium deposits in her elbows, shoulders, and knees. Teresa had heterotopic ossification, a condition in which bone develops where it shouldn't due to extremes of inflammation and prolonged immobilization. It was as if she had rocks growing inside of her joints. I'd never seen anything like it before, and I didn't know what to think. Teresa didn't react at all when I showed her the disturbing images, but her mother nodded in affirmation as if she now had permission to talk about her other concerns. She told me Teresa's brain wasn't working properly, that she'd forget things, people's names, that she'd grown afraid. Miss Martin stopped and shifted in her seat. She's a completely different person now. She glanced at her daughter sitting next to her in the wheelchair and sighed. So the reason I read that to you is that this is an extremely good example of PICS we have many other people in the book, such as Sarah Martin, for example. Sarah was an engineer, a female engineer for AT&T. She had a very similar occurrence, and I was able to get an MRI of her brain two years, two years after her ICU stay. And what we found was a profound amount of atrophy of her brain. And this is why we're collecting brains in COVID patients now and the, and the non-COVID patients to see what is this atrophy from. And the way I describe it in the book is that Teresa's MRI had these deep gyri and sulci, these, you know, these ups and down bumps in your brain. Hers were very exacerbated because of all the loss of the actual brain tissue. And what I said was it looked like somebody had taken immense amount of rich soil out of a garden and, and removed it. And all that was left were some wilted perennials in her yard. And it was horrifying to look at her brain because Sarah had been this vibrant, amazing person. And she came back to me and said, Dr. Ely, I, I can't even do my job anymore. I had to retire at the age of 50. And when we did her IQ testing, uh, you know, we, we told her, we said, Sarah, you, you know, your IQ is 115. And she went, what? My IQ is 115? We said, yeah, yeah, it's 15 points above normal because the normal is 100, of course. And she said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I had pre-IQ testing. My IQ has always been in the high 140s. So she was the index patient that we found with a pre-IQ test, ICU stay, and had dropped two standard deviations and then had these this wilted perennials inside of her brain, which is essentially what was going on with Teresa Martin. 
So that hopefully paints a picture for you of the illness that we're dealing with and why it's so wrong to not listen to these people and to tell them it's all in there, you know, all they're making this stuff up psychiatrically or something. No, this is a legitimate, actual organic disease that these people are suffering from. Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, it is first very powerful when you do share these exact stories and the notes that were taken on these patients. It actually brought tears to my eyes when I learned that that case was not, I really thought you were talking about a current case to hear that that case was years ago and that the situation seems similar to what it was then right now is truly sobering. But beyond that, I do think there's so many parallels between what you just described and what we've seen with patients with ME-CFS, even pre-COVID, where one of the first things I did when I was a student studying ME-CFS was I presented, I think it was a poster, where I just asked women with an ME-CFS diagnosis about their cognition. And these were women, and they described going from a level of being a company executive to barely reading above a fourth grade level or barely being able to, to conduct a phone call. And the interesting thing was, it's similar to what you said. Some of them had been such high achievers before getting sick that it seemed like they were functioning okay now. But if you compared their cognitive abilities to what they had been before their symptoms started, that's where you started to see how much things had dropped off for them and no one had. Everyone was just assuming they were okay enough, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, there's there's a really moving story in, in EDDB about a guy named Rob Harmer. He was a CEO of a company, really accomplished guy, and he got sick. And for a couple of years afterwards, this is pre-COVID too, but I'm, I'm about to tell you about a COVID patient. Pre-COVID, he, um, for years later, his, his office was like, what's wrong with you? You can't think anymore. So he actually, get this, came to see us uh, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but I'm going to let you know because I think it's important to bring this out on your podcast. He came to see us for dementia and the neurologist who saw Rob Harmer, and I'm using his actual name and all these people's pictures are on our website, by the way. If you go to icudelirium.org and go to the EDDB page, you can scroll down to a photo gallery and find pictures of all the people in this book, including Maya Angelou, John Prine. I mean, they're all patients in this book, but he he came to see us. The neurologist called me and said, Wes, I understand that there's some type of dementia that can occur after the ICU. So see, even a neurologist didn't know. And I said, let's meet next week and I'll, I'll describe it to you. And I got an email the day before we were to meet. And she said, Wes, we no longer need to meet. Rob Harmer has committed suicide. It was just devastating to me, just completely devastating. What had happened was he had gone back to his home with his wife and, 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 Dr. Leah Acosta, the neurologist, told him, I'm going to meet with this Dr. Ely. We're going to get to the bottom of this. I'll have you visit with me again, and we're going to figure out what's going on, how we can make your life better. But when he got back to his house, all the boxes from his office had been brought from his job to his front porch and put there. He was fired. And so he got home to his house. All of his boxes of stuff were there, and that's how he found out he was fired, and that was his last day on earth because he committed suicide. And there's so many people hurting themselves over the same exact circumstance in the pandemic, and we have got to pay attention to it. A precursor to this, though, is delirium. And I'm going to read you very quickly just a little story about uh, a COVID patient, because I think that we all have to fess up on what's going on with these people's lives. And so let me, let me share that with you. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Ray Fugit sat lopsided, legs askew in his bedside chair. 
His secretion streaked breathing tube, sticking a few inches out of his mouth and connected to the ventilator on his left, whizzed 380 milliliter breaths into him 18 to 24 times a minute, just the right calibration. Sunshine flooded through the large window and highlighted his short reddish brown hair, which stood straight up in the back, giving him a boyish appearance. He waved a small whiteboard at me, looking frustrated. This is the way he communicated with us. I could see in big red words he'd written in marker, let me go see Shelly, I have to see my wife. And then later we could hear him screaming and I'm skipping ahead in the, in the text here. He was screaming out loud, Shelly, come and get me now. They're trying to kill me, Shelly. They won't leave me alone. They're holding me against my will. So his brain, Amy, is going through delirium, which is a global cognitive dysfunction where his neurons aren't working right. And, and it could manifest as hallucinations and delusions, but it could also just manifest as, as the inability to pay attention a little bit more. Another person in the book later in the chapter. Sometimes the dreams come back, said Sarah Beth, the same woman I told you about earlier, just out of the blue. It's quite disquieting because you think they've gone away and your life is normal again, but they return and remind you that it's not. It's as if no matter how far in the past your illness was, you can't get away from it. And last patient, a COVID patient. He was in the ICU. He was watching the monitor and he couldn't figure out what was going on. He said, this is him talking. And these are all transcriptions of real interviews. Behind it, I saw a black jaguar perched up in the corner in pounce position, moving its tail real slow. I remember getting upset. Katie thought it was about the monitor and being hooked up and said, it's okay. It's helping you breathe. But I was thinking, there's an apex predator in the corner. Are we going to pretend that this cat isn't going to pounce on us and tear us apart? He paused for a moment. I was convinced that if I took my eyes off it, then this thing was going to kill us all. My hands were restrained, so I couldn't even defend myself. That went on for a full day, and everyone thought I was looking at the monitor. And that was quite upsetting, as I was thinking, I'm not the crazy here. You guys don't see this thing? So you see, that's, that's part of the illness, is that these people early on during COVID, their brain isn't working right, and their, brain, their neurons are getting injured. And then weeks later, they think, oh, I'm better, the illness is gone. And then the classic for long COVID is that 100 days later, bam, it hits them like a ton of bricks and their immune system and something related to their autonomic nervous system has all gone awry. And then they land kind of like Teresa Martin. They come back in the office and they're like, wait a minute, what? Like my life is so messed up right now. And the doctors test them and say, well, you don't quite pass the test result abnormalities. So I don't think there's anything really wrong with you. Um, maybe it's in your head. Wow. Right? That, yes. Wow. I mean, okay. So how much do you understand about, especially this delirium? How much has it been studied? Well, we, I've been studying this for 25 years. So we have done, we've studied thousands and thousands of people. We know that the cardinal feature is just the inability to pay attention. We know, for example, that every day that somebody's delirious during their illness, that they increase their chance of dying by 10% and they increase their chance of a long-term brain dysfunction by 35%. So throw in three days of delirium and you've basically got a 100% chance that you're gonna have some form of long-term cognitive dysfunction. And the main two areas that get hit are the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. And the prefrontal cortex is where we do our organization. It's our executive skills. And the hippocampus is our memory. 
So if you take 10 domains of neurocognitive function, the place that people land, people have disabilities all over those 10 domains, but the most notoriously abnormal are memory and executive function, which is exactly what makes somebody essentially have a dementia and not be, go, not be able to go back to work. Yes. Wow. And do you think then there's so much inflammation that's happening? That's the a root cause driver of this. What, what do you think is happening as yeah. in terms of root cause? Three, three root causes. One is the profound amount of inflammation that the brain is being subjected to. IL-6, TNF, all these inflammatory mediators, and the neurons are just getting pounded with this stuff. But in addition to that, you have the blood flow problem. So you have microclots, which even pre-COVID, we knew that was part of the delirium. Like if you get these autopsies and you stain the kidneys, the lungs, the brain, what you see in the capillary beds are thrombi. You see blood clots. And if blood is trying to get from point A to point B, but in between those two locations, it's clotted. It's like putting a pine cone or a rock is a better example, putting a rock into a hose. I mean, no water can get past that rock. So blood can't get past it. So that means the neuron on the downstream of that can't get food and water and oxygen, and it goes into death spiral, or what we call apoptosis, apoptosis. Um, but then the third thing, so you got inflammation and blood flow, but then the third thing is what I did wrong and how I contributed by pummeling their brains with benzodiazepines and propofol and these sedation drugs. And when I see them, person on the ventilator in the hospital and they're they have a lot of anxiety, the doctors and nurses think, well, we don't want them to be anxious. Let's give them these sedatives. And a little bit of that is okay and safe probably. But what we do is we give it to them for three days or six days or 10 days. And that is creating neurotoxicity. And we know that, that those drugs, if we reduce them dramatically, what we did randomized trials, for example, a study called the ABC study, which we published in Lancet, where we cut those drugs in half. And we showed for the first time ever that cutting those drugs in half improved survival dramatically. It was the largest, one of the largest survival advantages seen in critical care, where instead of, they, they would be 15% overall less likely to die. And that's not relative risk, that's an absolute reduction. So if your likelihood of dying was 45%, then you'd go down to 30% if I cut those drugs in half. So those drugs are making a big contribution to not only death, but the long-term disability. It's very interesting because I was going to ask you, I was going to say, how much of these symptoms, how many of these symptoms do you think have to do with the root cause drivers of the, the infection or whatever uh, illness they, they're in the ICU for, or I hate to say it, some of the medications that are being used and the side effects or other issues associated with, with those. And you just basically answered that question to a degree when you were talking about the benzodiazepines and other medicines. It does seem then, and I can see why it seems so important, and I know this is an emphasis of your writing and your, and your career, to say, could we substitute some of these drugs that are supposed to help patients cope with human contact or with other um, ways that we treat patients so that we don't have to medicate them so much? Is that something that you're working on? Yeah, and so that gets at a nutshell of what we did over the past 10 years. We, what we did was we said, you know, waking people up is safe and we proved that it was safe and it saves lives. And then in addition to that, we got to wake them up and get them out of the bed and get them walking again. And in addition to that, we need the family there to help them reorient. And so we put together many, many randomized control trials that we conducted and others around the world conducted. And we put them together into a safety bundle, 
or a safety checklist, either one, bundle or checklist, whatever you want to call it. But imagine that you wanted to get an airplane right now and go from San Francisco to New York. Well, your pilot and the team are going to run through a safety checklist, right? And we know that if they run that checklist, that you are much more likely to get there safely. So I thought, well, I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, and he talks about the need for something to be sticky and then to have mavens and salespeople and connectors. So I assembled, well, not, I don't want to take credit for this. We assembled, we, many of us assembled a large team of people around the country, especially led by the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I want to give credit to that amazing society because they built this. We actually got money from Gordon Moore, who is the founder of Intel, the billionaire. And he had gone to the ICU and he had this terrible delirious experience and his family wasn't allowed to visit. So he said, look, I'll put money in this if y'all can fix this. So we created a bundle called the ABC DEF bundle, six letters, six components. It's analgesia. It's be both waking them up and turning off the drugs and getting them off the ventilator. It's C, choice of drugs, like avoiding the Michael Jackson propofol drug when we can, avoiding benzodiazepines. D, delirium management, E, early mobility, and F, family. And we put 40 New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, and JAMA papers together that all supported this A2F bundle. I call it A2F. And, and we proved in a subsequent 30,000 humans that the A2F bundle, the more it was implemented, the more life-saving reduction you found, the shorter the ICU stay got, the shorter the hospital stay got, People are more likely to go home instead of to a nursing home and you're going to have less delirium and coma. And we proved that that worked. And we, prior to COVID, we had 80 to 90% compliance all over the world with the ABCDEF bundle. And when COVID hit, everything went to hell in a handbasket. And, and can I tell you the story of how it unfolded? Because I think it's pretty yeah, interesting. Of course. All right. In, in, in April of COVID in 2020, an investigator named Julie Helms from Strasbourg, France, published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. And in that paper, she reported on the fact that in COVID, 86% of the patients were getting benzos. I saw that and I, my jaw sank and I had a tear in my eye because I thought, oh no, oh no, oh no. Now the world sees COVID as a drug, as a benzo okay zone. We had been working for 15 years to get rid of benzodiazepines completely because over 30 randomized trials of benzos, they had never won. They always lose. Every time benzos are compared to any other comparator, the benzo loses. It's a bad drug in the ICU. And when I saw that New England Journal paper, I thought, oh my gosh, everybody's going to start using benzos now. And it's true. All over the world, people were, were used, started using benzos. So about a month later, I started getting emails from all these doctors in Spain and Latin America, Dr. Ely, Dr. West, we need to study delirium. Delirium is, is the epidemic in the pandemic. Like 90% of our patients are delirious. Well, just prior to COVID, we had finally gotten delirium rates in ventilated patients from 80% down to 40. We'd cut it in half with the bundle. And now all of a sudden it was back up to 80, 90%. So that was when I got on Twitter, actually. I'd never been on any social media, but they was like, Dr. Ely, you've got to get on Twitter. I was like, nah, I'm too old for Twitter. Are you crazy? But I'm on there now at West EMD, and we got on Twitter and we announced this study called the COVID D study. Do you know, Amy, in two weeks, we enrolled 2,100 COVID ICU patients from around the world. And what we learned was, and we published this in Lancet Respiratory, we learned that the delirium was being driven 
by two things, mm -hmm. both of which are treatable and modifiable. One, overuse of benzodiazepines and underuse of family. Those two key components of the A2F bundle had been completely disregarded and thrown out. And to this day, right now, we have way too much benzo use and way too many hospitals still have closed visitation, which I think is basically almost criminal and anti-medicine. Because how can we heal somebody if they don't have their loved ones at their side? Yeah. Wow. That is, this is a lot to process because I've been working and studying and talking to the long COVID patients, but not people in the ICU. And I didn't even know how much of this was happening. So I do, but it has been a topic that I've noticed that family members not being able to come into the ICU. And even it doesn't take an expert to think that that would be so, so difficult for the patient in the ICU. And I think one of the challenges there that has been hard for me to understand is it seems like a lot of hospitals only allow for surgical masks, but are people allowed to wear just high quality N95 masks under those conditions? It seems like it would be safe to come in and visit a family member. Oh yeah, that's what I wanna make sure the listener hears me say. And hopefully all of you hearing me can become an advocate for reopening visitation because we know that PPE is safe. And we know that if we wear our masks and a KN95 is, is a great tool for us and a, and a face mask as well, you know, like eye, eye shield as, long, as well as gown and gloves, that we, people can come into the ICU with their COVID patient. And like last week I had... A pregnant, a woman who just delivered her fourth baby, and we have permission to use her story. I'm not going to tell her name or anything, but but uh, I'm not giving away identifiers that she didn't give me permission to use. And her husband was in there with her each day in PPE, holding her hand in the ICU during her COVID. And that's that's our policy now, is that we allow people at Vanderbilt University to go into the room with PPE the other rooms, the non-COVID rooms, are wide open to, to back to pre-COVID pre uh, visitation. The COVID rooms, you know, have, a, have certain hours during the day when the COVID family members can be in there with them, but they're not just outside the glass. They're actually holding their hands, telling them they love them. And, you know, I really do think that that's where mercy comes in. My, my operative definition of mercy that I use as a physician is that I, it's my willingness to dive into the chaos of another person's life and provide lifting and healing. And what I think I was doing, Amy, all these years was I was diving into their chaos with you know, procedures and science and ventilators, but I wasn't providing the lifting and healing that I now see is so integral to what I need to do as a healer. And so my point is that we can't heal with science alone. We have to have love in that room too, to heal. I agree so much because Often, you know, for example, even when we're doing research on patients with long COVID or MECFS, we'll hear about a group that uses a lot of wearables or electronic devices to track symptoms. I think that's really cool. Actually, I think it's, uh, there's a lot you can get out of tracking people with electronic devices. But sometimes I'll just ask, are you also just asking the patient how they feel? Are you also tracking just the patient's experience and feedback at the same time as the electronic wearable? And a lot of times the answer is no. And I do think that it makes so much sense to just, just think of patient reported, reported feedback in patient um, what the patient tells you as being a totally acceptable source of evidence along with anything at the same level 
of evidence as, as, as what a device or a machine can record. And I've actually written one or two pieces on that because when I was first getting into science, evidence-based medicine is such a strong field, but the evidence-based pyramid by which people make decisions um, on what counts as evidence to me is skewed. And that patient reported feedback is at the bottom of that pyramid in terms of what counts as evidence. Literally sometimes studies in mice or rats count as a higher level of evidence than just what the patient is telling you about their disease. And that is not okay. That has to change. Wow, that you, what you just said should be echoed on all podcasts. That was such a beautiful way of putting that, Amy. I'm, I'm so proud of you and, 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 and just appreciative of you for your, for your genius in wording it that way, because you're right. What counts as evidence is, is oftentimes the qualitative and more humanistic side of things are oftentimes disregarded and it's not okay. You know, um, I, I was telling you before we got on the recording that when I was a boy, I was a farmer and, uh, you know, I worked on these fields and I watched these pickers and their voice was not heard. I mean, they had no insurance. Their little cuts would become huge cuts and pus and flies would be there. And one tooth problem would become a big gap in their smile. And I read that summer, Maya Angelou's book, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. You know, she was silenced in her own life after trauma. And I just thought, I've got to do something in my life to help people have a voice. And that's why I became a doctor. And then I found myself as a doctor silencing people too with, with my own sedation and immobilization and not paying attention to their story. And that's kind of what you just said is that their story is evidence. It's critically important fact points that we have to pay attention to. And I, I, I really feel like I was complicit with a form with many forms of testimonial injustice, which is silencing people, and also with epistemic injustice. So episteme means knowledge, and and I have all this knowledge, and I'm not sharing it with these people, and so that's epistemic injustice. And you know, in the book later on, as I'm writing, I, I make connection. I eventually got to be Maya's Dr. Angelou's doctor later on in my life, which was a, an amazing, crazy, you know, small world thing, which was a real privilege. But then at the end of the, when I was writing this book, I met with her son, Guy Johnson. And I want to say this quote because it, it, it's where it gets back to what you just said. I asked him, what was it like to grow up with your mother? And this is in EDDB in the book, Every Deep Drawn Breath. He said, you know, I grew up in her light. And many times I didn't deserve it, but it was always an experience that expanded me. And what I, what I want the listener to hear is that when we listen to one another, it expands our container for empathy and compassion. And I said, what did Maya, Angela, what did your mom teach you? You know, tell me, understand. So he, this is the only place in the world that this quote exists for Maya Angela is in, in every deep drawn breath. He said, she told me, I write from the black perspective, but I aim for the human heart. And that is essentially what we have to focus on to avoid these forms of injustice. If we aim for the human heart, then we will come from a place of cultural empathy that will cross our socioeconomic backgrounds, our educational backgrounds, you know, how we were raised. And then we will see each other for who we are, an entire human being, every person of just inestimable worth, and that no disease reduces our value and iota. We are all completely priceless human beings and must be heard. Yes. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that has emphasized that to me so much during the journey of studying patients with ME-CFS 
has been just a simple example of that would be patients are often giving questionnaires once they get an ME-CFS and now long COVID diagnosis that asks if they're anxious, that asks if they're depressed. And of course they'll check yes on different boxes because definitely getting a debilitating chronic illness all of a sudden when you were previously healthy and your life dramatically changing would make you anxious or depressed. But of course, a lot of doctors go back and then say, then that's your illness. Your illness is anxiety and depression. That's what, that's, what's causing it. And it really only takes talking to the patient for a few minutes and just saying, is your anxiety and depression because of the situation you're in? Or did you have this before? It's not that hard to figure out if you just speak to the patient and they can say, honestly, I was totally well adjusted until I figured, I realized I couldn't get out of bed. It doesn't seem hard. In other words, to just, there's all this debate on how can we show this and how can we prove that it's not, we could just talk to patients in in a world (laughs) of medical, you know, in a world where things were more logical and based, like you say, from the heart where things should be this wouldn't be a hard issue. We could just figure it out and move on to the more important topics in research, like whether the virus is still in brain tissue or you know what's going on with you know, all of these things that are much more important to get through. We can skip that step and we can just listen to the patient, right? So I do think that there, there's such a need for this to happen. And the more people that I talk to, everyone um, that's interacting with patients tells me a bit of this. And so it's actually good to hear. It almost feels like there's a small amount of change or revolution and people moving in this direction. How do you think we can keep moving it forward? I know that that writing people's stories down is one of the things you're doing and sharing lived experience. How can, how else, what else can we do? Again, I, I just think you're putting this together so beautifully. Um, we need more Amy Proals in the world. It is for, it is absolutely certain that we need to build this army of people who want to rebuild this. And, you know, that, for example, in, with, with any of the proceeds that come from this book, we're actually building an endowment called the EDDB Endowment for Survivors. And we're taking, we're taking people from all over the country and the world. We have people getting on our support groups from Japan and England and Latin America and all over the States. And we want to be there for people without them having to pay anything. So we, we are providing all of this for free to people. And, you know, this is about empathy and compassion. What I wanted to say is that, you know, when we want to come from a place of compassion and empathy, that's not something that people are necessarily born knowing how to do, but it's something that can be taught. And one of the lessons for me in this whole process was that I can go to a patient. Like if you notice when I read about Teresa Martin, one of the things I said was I had no idea where any of it was coming from. Remember when I read that? Yes. Well, we don't know where any of this long COVID stuff is coming from, but what can we do? Well, we can say, you know what, Teresa, Sarah, Amy, I don't understand what it is that you're going through. And the amount of suffering you have right now is something bigger than I can fully understand because I'm not the one going through it. But you know what? You're the expert of your illness, not me. And so I want you to tell me how you, what's going on with you. I will consider you the expert in your own illness. And even if I don't know all the answers, I will sit with you, work through with you, and over time, we will do everything we can to help you get better. And as we get new information and new technology and new science, then I'll keep advancing what we do for you explicitly. But right now, implicitly, you'll know I'm here with you. That sounds very reasonable. I think 
key to this, it seems like medical education needs to be revamped almost from the beginning to include a component that involves empathy. And as you say, it, it needs to be taught to some degree. It seems to me that, you know, for example, a long time ago, I was actually a pre-med student. I didn't end up becoming a doctor. I became a scientist. But I remember some of my early classes where we were dissecting cats, to be honest. And we had to memorize every single sinew of the cat, you know, foot and this. And I already then thought to myself, I know this is useful knowledge, but I doubt I'll remember any of these sinews in two weeks. And it does seem like I could look them up if I really needed to know what was there. But I do think we could spend a class where we talk about communication and how to speak to other people and how to talk to someone when they're suffering or when they're in a difficult place and what questions to ask and how to come into that room. And, I, I, and there were no classes like that that I ever went through. Exactly. And, you know, not everybody's a writer. OK, I get that. But why why not let all med students go through a period of uh, understanding about what narrative medicine is about? Because even if you're not a writer, if you learn about narrative medicine, you could either do it orally or you could do it written down. You know, I, can, I'm, I consider myself a pencil. So I listen to people's stories. I record them on devices like this. I'm holding up a, a you know, a, a digital recorder and then I transcribe them and then I put them down into stories. So that's one thing that I do that helps me process this. And I will say this to the listener, even if you're not a writer, talking about the experience that you had as a healthcare professional um, with other people or that's patients talking about their experience with healthcare professionals. All of that is healing. And the only way that I really realized that I was suffering and carrying around shame was when I started writing down these stories. And then it started percolating up. I had kind of suppressed it down and thinking, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, people talk about equanimity. You know, we, in Latin, it's equanimitas and this even keeledness. Okay. Well, that's good to a degree, but I pushed that way too far. And so I pulled myself back from patients and I became almost like an automatron or something. And that's no way to live as a doctor or a healer. And I don't think it's a way to live as a person. So yes, I agree with you. Let's revamp medical education. Yeah. Let's include this stuff as part of, of what we teach doctors because we can teach them compassion. And that's an evidence-based comment. It takes 40 seconds. We know this through literature, 40 seconds to state out loud a compassionate statement, which helps me connect to my patient. 40 seconds. Wow. And that can be taught. That does sound like it could be taught. And to clarify with your situation, did something happen where, you know, you were doing everything in such an automated way? Was there a particular incident that made you change and become more, you know, available and open and empathetic to your patients in the way you were, were working with your care? Or was it a slow, gradual process in which you started to actually write some things down and, and begin to process the situation? Well, uh, that's, a, that's a good one. Uh, you know, something's very specific happened. And what happened was two things. I went off when we had had our first daughter and then we had twins, identical twins. So we had three daughters. I went off and trained in lung transplantation. And in lung transplant, you have to get to know people a lot before the transplant, during the transplant, and then you follow them for years afterwards. Whereas most ICU doctors don't follow their patients for years afterwards. They're done when the patient leaves the ICU. Well, when I started training in transplant, I realized how rich these people's lives were and the way that I was acknowledging, learning about their suffering, I started thinking, you know what, I'm going to have to start following my ICU patients. So in the late 90s, I started having an ICU clinic where I followed people well after their ICU stay. And that made me start realizing that they were having a dementia problem and having a 
PTSD and depression problems. So I started seeing that. And then one other big thing happened. That oldest daughter of ours fell off of a high diving board headfirst onto cement. And when she fell that 15 feet, and I was right there with her, it's hard to even think about it. She fell into the water and blood was coming out of the back of her head. She was seizing. And I jumped in the water and, and, and got her out. And she was seizing there on the poolside. And there's a whole chapter in the book about this, uh, about this experience. But then when, when I examine patients, I'm taught to do it from the right side of the bed. But when I was in there with Taylor, I was on the left side of the bed as her dad, sitting in the chair at her side, holding her hand in the neuro ICU after this traumatic brain injury. And that experience changed me between the lung transplant thing, seeing people for the duration of their illness and years afterwards, and then being a dad instead of the doctor, I realized, oh my gosh, because I watched the way the doctors came in and how they were operating with me. And I figured I'm a doctor and they're, and I still think that they're being distant and off-putting. And they're probably way more than that when, when they're not with the doctor. And I thought, you know what? That's me. Like I can see that's who I am when I'm on the right side of the bed and I don't ever want to live like that anymore. And so that's chapter six in the book. And then from chapter seven through 12, and into the epilogue is I chronicle how the patients taught me. And again, it's not a memoir, but that part of the book about me is because I had to say what drove the research? What drove the research to use science to unpack this, to, br to bring about a way to change medicine, which became known as the ABCDEF bundle, the A2F bundle, so that people all over the world could reestablish humanism at the bedside. And now more than ever, we need this in COVID times. Uh, so I think we're gearing up to do this for the next 10 years. We're going to have to rebuild what came apart during COVID. Wow. Yes. It, I couldn't agree more that this time is so important for this, this kind of thing to happen. It, was your daughter okay? She is okay. She recovered. Uh, I mean, she has had all kinds of challenges with that, but I've got three beautiful daughters and she became a social worker. She's giving back to children of trauma in, uh, in, in the Lakota nation, the Native American nation. And I'm more than proud of her and what she's doing for other people. Oh, good, I'm so glad to hear that. Wow, okay. All right, well, first of all, I'm gonna read your book soon. <laughs> I really plan to do that. And then I guess from there, um, I think that it was really actually, I originally thought I was gonna ask you more about just the research you were doing, but I do think that just talking about this need for there to be more human connection with patients, to believe patients, to listen to patients was actually the most important thing to talk about. It's the basis of what everything else has to be founded on. That being said, with research now, I guess, what are some of your goals then? You're doing the brain study with, and you're going to do long COVID brains and COVID brains? Right. Are and, you going to look uh, for the virus vasculature? So absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're, we, so we have, right now, we have a, a, just a complex array of clinical trials and cohort studies that we're doing. This includes long-term neurocognitive outcomes of COVID patients out to one and two years. We have a whole bank of people calling them and doing phone batteries of neurocognitive results of COVID patients. We have the brain collection study called Brain ICU. We're, we're neuroimaging. We're using neuroimaging to predict the development of delirium. We are testing different drugs for delirium so we can treat delirium better and more easily in the hospital. Because as I said, delirium is a driver of this dementia. So if we can reduce the front end problem 
you know, a classic public health uh, image to get in your head is that of, uh, of calm water, which then leaves the, the lagoon and goes to a river, which becomes rapids, which goes over a waterfall. And too often we're trying to get people when they're going over the waterfall. And I want to yes. go back upstream and if, I have a master's in public health. So I want to use public health to prevent the problem in the first place. We're also testing drugs for COVID. I, with Vince Marconi and other investigators, designed what's called the Cove Barrier Study, which was published in Lancet. We tested the drug baricitinib, for example, which was a rheumatoid arthritis drug for COVID, and it became the most successful preventer of death of any drug in COVID, right? the largest survival advantage of any drug in COVID to date in the ICU world is the, is the baricitinib use in COVID. And that's now part of the World Health Organization's COVID uh, guidelines. So I'm very thankful to be a part of that team as well. And we give that drug, by the way, through Eli Lilly's gift and through working with Partners in Health, Paul Farmer, may he rest in peace, his organization, we give that drug for free to any COVID patient anywhere in the world uh, in a lower middle income country. So in all the LMICs around the world, we give that drug to them because we want equity here. We want equity in health, we want equity in the ICU, we want equity for long COVID patients. And so those are some of the things we're working on. There's just a, it's just an absolute great time to be a scientist because there's so much we can explore and learn, but it's, it's also a better time to be a person because right now we have nowhere to go but up in our humanism. And we're gonna see a, hopefully a, an exponential rise in all of us working together to provide that merciful care that compassion, that empathy, so we can all get on the same page here and treat each other with the kind of respect and dignity that all of us deserve, regardless of our, of our cultural backgrounds. Absolutely. Yes. Well, it is incredible to hear what you are up to. And I, what you have described really resonates with me. I hope we can stay in touch and actually continue to figure out if any of the research we're doing or what you're finding on patients, if we can even collaborate or at least just stay in touch to be able to work on anything um, that we've discussed. Even just thinking about medical education or the way we approach patients, they're all things that I think about every day. So it was really cool to be able to talk to you about them. Well, Amy, it's a real privilege to meet you. I'm so glad we connected. And I do want to stay connected with you over time because maybe we can collaborate. And for your listeners out there, feel free to connect with me on our website at icudelirium.org. I'd love to to communicate to you on Twitter, if you come come find me at Wes Ely, MD, and um, I'm just you know I'm just a I'm a, I'm a widget, and I want to be a widget in in helping people find solutions, but it's um it's a privilege, and I've I've learned more from all of you than than anybody could ever learn from me. So let's all do it together. Sounds good. All right, we'll be in Thanks. touch then. Thank Thanks, you. Bye bye. Bye.